Welcome to the Art of Medicine, the program that explores the arts, business, and clinical aspects of the practice of medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wilner. On this program, I love to speak with physicians who have made important contributions to medical practice and with physician authors. My guest today, Dr. Ola Sogstad, fits both of those categories. We're going to learn a lot in the next 30 minutes or so. But before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor, locumstory.com. Maybe you're curious about locums and how it might fit into your career story. But do you know all the different reasons physicians choose locums and how it works for them? At locumstory.com, you can hear firsthand stories as diverse as physicians themselves. There's not one solution for everyone. The variety of opportunities might surprise you. Locum Story is an unbiased educational resource. It has tools that let you explore trends in your specialty and compare different locums agencies. There's even a simple quiz to see if locums is right for you. Do your own research at locumstory.com. It's easy. And now, Dr. Ola Sogstad, welcome to the Art of Medicine. Thank you very much, uh, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. I just got your book the other day, Fighting yes. for Air. I've put it yes. in the library section on my website, www.andrewwilner.com. And of course, it's on Amazon. Uh, do you happen to have a copy of it? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's here. I don't know if you can see it clearly. Okay, so my understanding is that book took uh, 74 years to write. Is that correct? <laughs> well, not exactly, but uh, I spent a couple of years <clears throat> writing it, yeah. But of course, as you are um, hinting at, it, uh, I summarized uh, my whole life, more or less, <laughs> which was 74 years at that stage, yes. Yeah, so so bring us up to date. Tell us a little bit about what what prompted you to what's your background and what prompted you to write the book. Yeah, well, I'm a I'm a pediatrician. I had my education in Oslo, Norway, and um, I went into neonatology um, because I was fascinated by by that part of medicine very early. Already, actually, when I was a medical student. And I started my PhD on um, on a project on on newborn um, hypoxia, birth asphyxia, lack of oxygen um, around birth. And I, I did that. I started actually in Sweden, Uppsala, Sweden. And then I, I finished my PhD in Oslo. This is way back to 1967, 77, sorry. Um, so um, I became very devoted to neonatology to take care of newborn babies. In 1991, when I was a um, consultant of neonatology at the National Hospital in Norway, based in Oslo, I was also appointed as a professor and director of the Department of Pediatric Research at the University of Oslo, which um, was and still is the, the largest um, research institute for children health in Norway. 
So I had that position for 27 years um, until I retired five years ago. So, but in between that, I spent, I did my postdoc in US. I was at the University of California, San Diego for one year. And uh, also spent some time at the Cardiovascular Research Institute at the University of California, San Francisco. That's way back in the 1980s. So that's um, a little bit about my professional background. Actually, in the uh, early 1980s, I spent a couple months at UCSD in Southern California okay. uh, working on uh, fish brains. And it's a okay. beautiful campus yeah. and a lot of yeah. neurologists there. Yeah. Now, when you started <laughs> neonatology, it was really a very uh, new science. Is that correct? Yeah. Neonatology started more or less let's say around uh, in the beginning of the 1960s. Um, I mean, intensive care medicine of newborns. And uh, actually, um, what uh, kind of uh, initiated that was the death of Patrick Kennedy in uh, 1961. He was born preterm pre and uh, he died and and um, after that, uh, intensive care medicine ventilators for newborns were developed in, in the US, first of all. And then th that spread to, to the rest of the world, to Europe. But in, um, in Norway, it started maybe 10 years later in the 70s. So um, yeah, it's, it was a quite a young um, branch of medicine when I started. So I met many of the old guys and uh, which were very important for, for the development of the field. Now, just so we're all at the same starting point, why do newborns have such trouble breathing? Premature well, um, yeah, if they, you know, they're approximately 5% of uh, newborns in US and also in in western part of the world uh, needs um, help to start breathing immediately after birth uh, so they have apneas or you know the first breath is extremely important for these babies they have to expand the lungs and at the same time the the fluid which is filling the lungs are is expelled and so the baby takes the first breath and they start to cry and the lungs are filled with air. So the gas exchange can start. But for approximately 5%, they need help with bag and mask ventilation. Uh, and in addition, there are several babies who need stimulation, just uh, tactile stimulation to start breathing. So, but of course, most of the newborns, they have a very smooth transition, but for those 5%, and 5% is quite a lot um, when you know that there are 4 million newborns in US, 135 million newborns globally every year. So there are many millions uh, of newborns who need help to start breathing. Okay, so I guess 
way back when the obvious thing to do was to give them 100% oxygen. I mean, that would be the obvious thing to do, but you had this idea that maybe that's not the right thing to do. Yeah, that's, uh, that's correct. Uh, you know, oxygen was um, described and discovered as an element in the late uh, 1774 uh, by Priestley in England. And oxen was then very quickly, within a few years, was um, given as treatment to newborns. And it continued like that. And, um, and uh, so it was standard care to give 100% oxygen for newborns who did not breathe immediately after birth. So they were ventilated with 100% oxygen. And um, I started to uh, think about this and that this might not be the optimal way to, to treat these babies. And the reason I started to think about that was that my, my PhD thesis was about hypoxia in newborns, but it was also an experimental study. Um, and I had uh, detected uh, that um, by chemical substance, a metabolite, which is named hyposanthine, when it uh, <clears throat> reacts with oxygen, free radicals are generated. And I was able to show that very high concentrations of hyposanthine accumulates in newborn babies who lack oxygen. So then I started to think that maybe the combination of high level of hyposanthin and oxygen is, might be detrimental. And now we are back to the end of the 1970s. And I <clears throat> introduced this uh, <clears throat> idea first time in a paper in 1980. So that's way back, it's more than 40 years ago. Well, <laughs> All right, let's jump ahead 40 years. What do we do now? Do we give them 100% oxygen or does it turn out that's not the way to go? Yeah, well, you know, when I introduced this um, idea, many people just laughed and thought that I was uh, uh, crazy or stupid um, uh, because, you know, it was stand standard care, standard of care to, to give 100% oxygen. So started with some uh, experiments with newborn animals and we were able to show that um, it is possible to resuscitate with air, <clears throat> the air around us, which contains 21% oxygen, just as efficiently as with 100% oxygen. And then we moved on and did a pilot study uh, with a colleague in, in India, in Delhi, uh, his name is Siddharth Ramji, and he was very brave because um, um, he was willing to do such a study and very quickly we were able to show that it is possible to resuscitate with air. And then we did a multicenter study, a randomized multicenter study in several countries, and we showed that it is possible. And actually, there was a strong tendency to a lower mortality in those babies who had been resuscitated with air. And that was even 
to me, it was a surprise because I thought, okay, maybe it is as efficient, but I hadn't expected that uh, mortality would be lower. And then other uh, investigators did similar studies, clinical studies, and um, very soon it was clear that by substituting 100% oxen with air, mortality is reduced 30%. And that, and that was highly significant. And that is quite dramatic results. So, um, so now we are in the beginning of the 2000s. So um, from 2006, there was a gradual change in attitudes in different countries. And 2010, the International um, Committee for Newborn Recitation, which named ILCOR, they changed the guidelines from 100% oxygen to room air. And that was a dramatic change. And so the last uh, 12 years, it has been our common practice to resuscitate uh, newborn babies with air instead of 100% oxygen. And this is big advantage, not only because mortality is decreased. We, by the way, we, we estimated that a 30% reduction in mortality means that we can save two to 300,000 newborn babies worldwide every year, but just substituting oxygen with air. But there's another important factor and that was the so-called stillbirth, so-called fresh stillbirths. Babies who didn't breathe, <clears throat> maybe didn't have any heart um, rate when they were born and in low-income countries, these babies were not even tried to be resuscitated. They were just put aside and died. And that is still, there's more than 1 million babies every year. And, um, and a study from Wally Carlo in Birmingham, in Alabama, showed that 30% of these can be rescued by bag and mask ventilation. So that adds another 300,000 saved lives, totally approximately half a million lives uh, globally every year, but just by changing from oxen to air. Well, and I guess pragmatically, not everybody, you know, globally has a hundred, has a bottle of a hundred percent oxygen yeah. next to the bed, but everybody has a bottle of air, right? So. Yeah, exactly. The, the air is everywhere. And uh, oxygen is actually expensive. And so, so in low-income countries, uh, most places they didn't have oxygen. And uh, so, and the attitude was that if you don't have oxygen, there's no reason to even try to ventilate, to try to resuscitate these babies. So they were just let aside and nobody cared about them. Um, so that was a big advantage. Well, there are a lot of children out there who owe you a thank you. <laughs> yeah, they don't, yeah. they don't yeah. know that, that it's you, but uh, that yeah. must be a very nice feeling. Yeah, it is, it is, it is. You know, your story, when I was reading your book, it reminds mm -hmm. me of the story, I'm sure you're familiar with this, of uh, stomach ulcers, where yeah. for yeah. many, many years, everybody yeah. knew that stomach ulcers were due to stress and you needed to yeah. see a psychiatrist. 
And then these two crazy guys, uh, Barry Marshall and Robin Warren said, oh, no, no, it's due to this new bacterium, you know, uh, Helicobacter pylori, and we can treat it with antibiotics. And they just thought these guys were lunatics, right? Yeah, yeah. And they were right. And they got the Nobel Prize for that. So, so, you know, sometimes you have to stick to your guns. I think that's the lesson of uh, your story and theirs. Uh, Good for you. Yeah, but, but, you know, many people were skeptical and some people are actually angry and aggressive, thought that this was child abuse and so forth. So then I I always, if if I got such... uh, accusations, I, I said, how do you know that oxygen is the best? Because it had never been tested out in any randomized trials before. I want to write a book about all the things you knew <laughs> were true, but aren't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's one of them. Yeah. So let, let, <clears throat> let me explore a little bit you mentioned there was a lot of disbelief. There were even accusations. I was very uncomfortable, your position. How did you personally uh, cope with that? What enabled you, do you think, to uh, to stick to your guns and uh, push through with this? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Well, you know, I, I had the attitude that it was my task, my calling to test this out, but it was not my, my, it was not my duty to give new recommendations. I left that to others. So I, I just presented results from animal studies and from two clinical studies, first of all. And I, le- I left it to others to, to decide whether the guidelines should change and in what way they should change. So I think that was very important. I, I kept out of that. Um, so I felt I, I handled this in a, in a decent way. I mean, I followed all the ethical rules in, for medical research. Um, so I, I felt I was on the right track. You mentioned in your book, I think it was when you were a teenager that you discovered or rediscovered uh, your faith. Um, yeah. Was, was that important in this process? Yeah, I think uh, faith, uh, Christian faith is important as a support and also as a kind of correction that you're going the right direction. I, I didn't I didn't grow up in a in a particularly Christian home, uh, but uh, as I also write about in my book, uh, my parents divorced when I was 13 years old, and I think that was important for me to find. I mean, an, another kind of. Uh, solid base for my life. So I started to go in, into church and and uh, became a churchgoer. Yes. And that's been very important uh, part of my my life and still is, of course. And it still is. And it still yeah. is. Because I can imagine when everybody's telling you that uh, this is a nutty theory and you're wasting their time, right? And you're abusing <laughs> these children. You, 
did did you have any self-doubt or were you sure you were doing the right thing well you know i of course i i questioned myself if i was on the right track but i think i we did this very carefully i for instance the first uh, clinical studies we decided that if a baby didn't respond to resuscitation with air within 90 seconds we switched them over to oxen so that we knew that we didn't do any harm uh, so i think we were very careful um with the first uh, in the first um, studies uh, but of course it would have been terrible let's say and i've been thinking about that many times although we today know that air is better than oxen for these babies there might be subgroups of babies who would need oxen and uh, it's difficult to kind of uh, discover that so you need huge studies to do that for instance uh, preterm babies the most preterm babies they shouldn't be resuscitated with air they should be resuscitated with some supplemental oxygen and uh, for instance 30 percent oxygen and we're still <clears throat> working on this field because we don't know what is the optimal for babies born for instance more than eight weeks um, premature especially those who are born or 12 weeks before term, we don't know the optimal um, initial ox oxygen concentration to give these babies. So we have a large uh, international group, which is now testing this out in different studies around the world in Australia, North America, and also in Europe. Uh, so there's still unanswered questions. And in addition, I think uh, every scientist has to um realize that what we believe is right may be wrong tomorrow so i think it's important that we search ourselves and see that is there anything wrong with the way i was thinking and and uh, and i still do that well you made a just a terrific uh, contribution and um i highly recommend your book i think it's a it's a great story to read. And, you know, uh, I, I think many scientists uh, have self-doubt and, and should, but uh, should, should, also, yeah, absolutely. should also not abandon uh, their uh, good ideas. <clears throat> yeah. No, it's important to find the right balance between the doubt and belief. And... Uh, Professor Ola, what is next for you? What are you going to do now? What? How about tomorrow? Well, I'm still uh, active, um, although I'm emeritus as a professor and I'm not the director of the research institute. I still um, have some students and I, I have a position at Northwestern University in Chicago as an adjunct professor. And so I hope that it's able I'm able to go there this spring because due to the pandemic the covid pandemic I haven't been there for several years now so I I look forward to resuming that activity and I'm also editor of a, a medical journal and so I, I'm busy and I, I'm traveling around the world also giving lectures about uh, resuscitation of newborns and how to oxygenate newborn babies 
in optimal way. So, yeah, it keeps me busy. At uh, my hospital where I work here in uh, Memphis, uh, we do yeah. have a regional uh, high-risk pregnancy uh, center. So this is something that uh, we do see. So yeah. uh, that's just terrific. Well, is there anything you'd like to add before we close? Um, no, I think I well, thank you for inviting me to this um, podcast. And uh, uh, well, I think we have covered many aspects. Uh, there was one thing I didn't mention, uh, which was very important in my life. And that was I, I spent two years in Chicago when I was a small boy from the age of three to five, because my father, who was a psychologist, he, he did his PhD in Chicago. So um, uh, I spent um, totally, I think, four years of my life in US. Well, Dr. Sostad, I wanna thank you very much for chatting with me on the art of medicine. Thank you so much. Well, before we close, I'd like to give another thanks to our sponsor, locumstory.com, a resource where providers can get real, unbiased answers about locum tenants. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner. See you next time. This program is hosted, edited, and produced by Andrew Wilner, MD, FACP, FAAN. Guests receive no financial compensation for their appearance on the art of medicine. Andrew Wilner, MD, is Associate Professor of Neurology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, Memphis, Tennessee. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on this program belong solely to Dr. Wilner and his guests and not necessarily to their employers, organizations, or other group or individual. While this program intends to be informative, it is meant for entertainment purposes only. The Art of Medicine does not offer professional financial, legal, or medical advice. Dr. Wilner and his guests assume no responsibility or liability for any damages, financial or otherwise, that arise in connection with consuming this program's content. Thanks for watching. For more episodes of The Art of Medicine, please subscribe www.andrewwilner.com